<sighs> going there with Greg. Today it has happened. I'm Greg Metford. What's going on? <laughs> Man, it's been a crazy week. Uh, Jason, who's kind of my uh, conspirator in this process, was out of town uh, a little few few personal days away from the office. So we kind of stood down, and I focused on holding up my end of the ship here. I did some uh, I did some uh, old fashioned uh, grinding yesterday, and I'm back to boss man stuff today guys i've got a lot to unpack here and uh i thought we could uh i thought it would be a great time Let's see if i can get this so i can i like i like communicating with you guys i like seeing i don't know how to tell uh maybe jason knows how to turn the comments on he'll probably come in here and help me when he brings me my water so uh, maybe there's nobody in there yet. Okay, that's what it is. Before you disappear, would you would you mind dropping a water off with me? Yeah. I thank you very much. Oh, they're in a different place. I'm not even used to seeing that there. I'm such a retard. So, uh, the title of episode 11 is having courage for your convictions. Have courage for your convictions. I want to talk a little bit about my journey and uh, about so many of you that have been on this journey with me and how grateful I am for it. But I want to talk a little bit about the cost of being on a journey like this. And I think people don't realize, uh, you know, we've got, we get our, we get our little lefties and we get our passersby who swoop in and say, oh, I'm ruining my company. And, um, and listen, I clearly, I've lost big commercial accounts and regained them. I've lost small commercial accounts and replaced them or regained them. Um, I've done a lot of stuff that's cost me money, but in the long run, it comes back. So I heard uh, Charlie Kirk say something the other day, and it's not like I'm a fanboy or anything. I listen to the left, I listen to the right, I, I listen to everybody. I want to hear what everyone's take is because. You know, as Aristotle said, there the truth is it lies between the two extremes. I listen to the extremes, and it's not like I find some moderate truth everywhere. Sometimes the truth is really extreme, and that's okay. But um, if if you listen to people's perspective and you um, are able to sniff out some truth, their perspective will tell you a lot about them, how they're telling or portraying something that's happened or will happen or some conflict or something that's happening in the news. How they're talking about it tells you about them. And you have to listen. And uh, you have to really read between the lines. And you have to, you don't even have to listen very much. I'm sure I could write a, com a computer algorithm for finding out if someone talking about event is a liberal conservative, a liberal or a conservative or a centrist. If you ever try to report on a story or write a story, which I've done, and you try to do it completely neutral, it's super factual and super boring, and it's the way old-fashioned news used to be. If you make it interesting, you start injecting opinion, you start injecting perspective, and you add some hyperbole to make it a little more scintillating because you want more rating. Anyway, I listened to Charlie Kirk, and someone asked him, you know, hey, Charlie, what can we do? What can just average, everyday people do? 
when you feel like your democracy's been hijacked, when you feel like the big institutions are completely 100% allied against our perspective, and they are. The big media, the uh, internet monopoly monopolist oligarchs, and the big leftists, they're unified. They speak with one voice. From week to week, you can hear entire phrases that numerically are impossible to be chance. You can hear them speaking with one voice. They are one party, one voice, one message, one global perspective, one myopic global perspective that doesn't really care about you if you don't live in a big city that votes for them. But they just think you're a stupid hick who needs to do what they say. So I've been speaking my mind for a long time. And I've been out here hanging it out pretty heavy. I wear, uh, you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I put my hand on my heart and I speak my mind. And, I, and sometimes I overspeak. Sometimes I say stuff that's not totally accurate because I'm not sitting here Googling everything, however accurate that may be. I, you know, I'm doing it like you used to do in the old days with what you know and your memory as best you can and the memory of your research you've just done. You know, when I interviewed Congressman Blackman, I was doing it some off notes, some of what I've read. You can't write down everything you read or you've got all this information. It's not useful. It's too much. So I wrote down some highlights and I just had to remember the, the rest, you know. And it's the way it is when I kind of riff it like this. I have to basically remember what I know. And, and sometimes while you're talking and you're looking at comments and you've got somebody giving you a uh, uh, producer type feedback from the side and you're looking at your notes, you can trans you could say nine instead of six. You could say old instead of new. It's funny uh, watching myself, how my, my brain responds to all this input. It's a lot of input really fast. So I wanted to talk today about what Charlie Kirk said, what I've been doing for a long time. Oh, a little tea for me. And... I want to tell you some anecdotes I want to, uh, from my personal life that have happened in the last week. And I think it will be interesting. And the reason I'm telling this to you is not to tell you I'm special. It's to tell you that whatever the cost, it's worth it. So let's dive in. Um, Charlie Kirk says to them, hey, listen, what, if you're not doing something that hurts, you're not doing enough. Charlie, how can we help our country that we feel like it's been hijacked by a marxist revolution of sorts he said well look he goes you do something you yell from the top of a roof yell from a bullhorn go to your local committee meetings make noise there be a problem they have to deal with make them deal with you exert yourself at your local school board if you can get bigger and think bigger do it if you can donate money do it till it hurts and do it to the people you think who've got the right mindedness and he said, and if it doesn't hurt, you're not doing enough. If it doesn't hurt, you're not doing enough. I want to give you two perspectives on this. One is that the battle is fought with money. And the battle is not as much big corporations swooping in with money because that's easily trackable and it can be debunked over time. It's the, it's the uh, soldiers, a, a million soldiers donating $100 is a big deal. So instead of fighting a war or fighting a revolution or causing an insurrection, and it would hurt to do that, 
you can do your specialty, whether you're an accountant or you're a, you own a limo company or you have a knife business or you own a garage or whatever it is you do, you can afford to give something. And if you can't, then you subtract something else in your life and make it hurt. Donate that to someone who you believe is a baller in the ideological world that you want our country to head in. And that's the best war you can fight right now. If you're just a regular person and you don't have a big voice and you can't speak out at work. Um, I interviewed um, a young lady last week who refused to get a vaccine. People say, oh, what a troglodyte. Well, she's a medical professional and she has seen firsthand and has just made the informed decision uh, based on all the information and a medical background and uh, anecdotal evidence, she didn't want to get it. Now, I'm not debating if she's right or wrong, but she chose that she didn't want to do that. You know, it was her body, her choice. And her big corporation that she worked for fired her. It hurt. It actually hurt the hospital too. They had to get rid of a competent professional. They talk about being understaffed and overworked. And they're having to hire people uh, and fire people because of this. And they can't find the people to replace them. It hurts. And you make it hurt everybody around you. Now you're going to lose friends over it. And you're going to gain friends over it. And over time, if you're right... And over time, if you make your case, and over time, if you don't give up, your friends will come back around. And you will change people's minds. So I want to tell you a couple of anecdotes, uh, the first of which is something I've heard many, many times. And I know many of you have heard similar things in your life if you're outspoken. I'm the kind of guy that for years, if... Uh, you know, when Amy and I were together and we socialized, if we went places, I was the guy that kind of got under people's feathers and got us uninvited. She was always very pleasant and nobody, it was, I, I'm, I'm fun. I'm like the, I'm like a, I'm like a blowtorch. I'm fun to have around and you can get burned uh, because I don't pander to my audience. I just am who I am. So I know it was very, uh, she doesn't have to deal with me anymore, but she, she, she did have to deal with me. <laughs> now my girlfriend has to deal with me and she's like, oh, well, he's romantic, but boy, he's a handful to take out. <laughs> so let me uh, tell you this story and then you guys can, and then I'll tell you the next story. The first story is a really good friend of mine. We've been friends for 25, 26, 27, maybe 28 years. Um, I was there, we were friends before he got married. We've been friends his whole marriage and, uh, he's been with me on my journey as a friend. Uh, and, uh, this is kind of sticky for me cause these are my friends and they listen to the show sometimes. And so I don't want to, I don't want to out my friend too much, but he's going to know who I'm talking about. So this stuff happens in Afghanistan this week and he starts texting me and then we're on the phone and he's like, why isn't there a fucking revolution going on? He was going off and I get it. He was frustrated and he was vocalizing himself. You know, I'm not his wife who's left of center. I'm not going to be wrangled by him, wrangled by him breaking right wing on me. 
And uh, he just goes off. He's like, well, you know, what the fuck is wrong with everybody and blah, 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 blah. And I just sat there kind of quietly and I was listening. And he's, you know, he's coached me not to swear in front of his mom. He's uh, asked me to tone myself down around his wife. And uh, I've always complied. You know, I don't want to be a burning, you know, I'm like, come on, dude, really? And I'm like, all right, fine, you know, whatever. It's always annoyed me a little bit. And I annoy him because I'm sure he'd like to have me around socially, but his wife doesn't want me around that much. And that's okay. I'll live. But he was talking about it. And I said, well, look, man, I go, everybody's, you know, he says, you know, all I want to do is watch football and cook burgers with my, my family and my son. And I just want to, and I said, dude, you're watching football. And, and this is kind of quiet on the other end of the phone. I said, you're watching the NFL. He says, yeah, I go, this all happened because Marxists started a race revolution that didn't need to happen. That's not really accurate. That's not based on data. It's pure emotion. That's really a bunch of Marxists using race to tear down our nation and its institutions. And he's a retired cop. I said, he goes, I love football. I go, so you're supporting, but if you watch it, it's data that supports their movement. I said, it starts at home, man. I go, look, have burgers with your family. Swim at the pool. Play uh, Fleetwood Mac in the background. You know, whatever. Listen to some Pink Floyd. Something that's pre-politics. But if you're watching the NFL, they know you're watching it. You're a metric for them. They know you're a white guy. You're a white guy supporting this whole thing that at our core, we're very conflicted about. Not about equality. It has nothing to do with that. It has to be about these crazy organizations that hijack our country with their crazy ideas and they, 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 uh, they hijack the narrative, they hijack the conversation, they suck the air out of the room, and then millions of millions of people stop doing the work and business of running our country and get stuck on these side issues. Gender transition surgeries in the military, uh, systematic racism in the U.S. government. I, I don't know if it's there, uh, but I know that riots in Minneapolis and Seattle didn't help it. So if in our daily lives, we are continuing to watch the NFL and we're continuing to wear our Nikes and we're continuing, you know, you can't cut off from everything. I get it, but you have to find some stuff and you have to cut off from it and it has to hurt. And it's got to make a difference when you cut off and it's good to let them know. One way you can let them know is not be their metric on cable or on on digital satellite that you're not watching that that as soon as it comes on you go to another channel they have that data that as soon as an nfl ad pops up on your on on your feed on your search engine that you're using you click out of it you object to the ad on facebook whatever it is it has to hurt So I told him, I said, hey, man, I go, you're the problem. I go, you want to watch football and have burgers with your family, and you don't want to be a part of the revolution. Part of the revolution is stiff-arming the idiots and their, and their soapbox that they're brainwashing the country on. You have to stiff-arm them. You know, and it makes it sound like I don't want someone to hang out with their family. I said, you know, you got a complete lefty wife. You need to have that discussion. As uncomfortable as it may be, you got to kind of work that out.
I could never be with somebody who's a liberal. Ever. Ever. Impossible. How can I be with somebody who sees the world so aberrantly different than I do and values the things that I value, such as actual personal freedom and responsibility? How could I be with somebody who doesn't value those core things as much as I do? Or it, even in the same ballpark that I do. I thought it was something illustrative because everybody says, Greg, what can I do? What can I do? You give money to the right people till it hurts. You turn off the NFL. You stop wearing shoes made in countries you don't like. You stop buying clothes made in countries that are against or are enemies of our own nation. You stop supporting companies that do their business in those places. And you let them know why. You have to. That's the battle. You know, January 6th didn't happen in a big way. And the only reason it didn't happen is because the boss didn't want the election to go that way. Because Trump believes in democracy. He believes in the vote. He believes in the people's word. He didn't want that kind of revolution. And honestly, neither do I. I don't want to see smoke on the horizon, burned out buildings. I don't want some post-apocalyptic America, some Mad Max Arizona. I don't want that. What I want is my vote to actually be counted and actually be matter. And I want people who disagree with me to stop cheating. And I want the people who agree with me to never be cheating because I want my perspective to be beyond reproach. We have to demand that. Somebody said to me, Afghan's bigger. I said, God, what happened to the Arizona election audit? Where's where's that? When's that? It was supposed to be out last week. They're saying the staff is down with COVID and they can't get it done in time. It's not going to be out this week either. When is the Arizona election audit going to come out? Everyone's asking me because I live here in Arizona. They say, oh, well, Afghan's go- Afghanistan's going on. It's more important. Actually, Afghanistan is not more important than the election audit. I know you veterans might rankle at that, but what difference does one conflict or the next conflict matter if half of the American population does not believe in voting anymore? What happens to the American enterprise? There is nothing more important than an accounting, a recollecting, and a a correcting if needed. If it's not needed, fine, I'll take my loss. There is no more important American issue than that election because you can't proceed forward with millions and millions of regular folks feeling completely like it's a show and millions of business owners feeling the same way. You can't. You can't have a country that broken. It's got to hurt or you aren't doing enough. I want to tell you my second anecdote. So that's my first anecdote from my retired cop friend who is a dear friend whom I love. And um, he's always been there to help me when I've needed help. I've helped him move several times, helped him start his business a little bit, gave him a hand when he needed it. And he's just, he's a great guy, great American, great human being. And I just called him out. I go, well, you're not doing enough. Quit fucking complaining, man. You got to go do something. Do something. Tell you my second story. So about 35 years ago, I went to a college called Albertus Magnus College down in uh, 
New Haven, Connecticut. Used to be back when uh, schools were male and female. It was a sister school to Yale. It was Dominican. And I was one of the first few years that had guys at the school. It was a great learning time for me. It was a great little institution. And uh, they had a huge English as a second language system uh, with their sister city in Japan. So we had lots of students from Japan there. At any given time, there were, I don't know, it seemed like maybe two, 150, 200 straight off the boat Japanese kids there wanting to get fluent in English. And like so often happens, your first 60 days in a new country is really rough. And going from Japan to America, East Coast America, is a gigantic transition, as it would be for us going to Tokyo. And they have a tendency to kind of have their, if they're going to have a meltdown, they're going to have it in the first 60 days before they kind of settle into the groove of America. What they found was, all right, so I was teaching martial arts with one of my uh, friends on campus. And... um, and I was doing uh, bonsai tree training and uh, doing some sword training, uh, doing Iaido. And these Japanese kids were gravitating towards what I was doing. And the reason why is because it was a little taste of home, even though none of them had trained before. None of them were training in Shotokan Karate. None of them were doing bonsai. None of them were into Iaido. They all knew about it from their grandfathers and family. It was part of the culture. But, I mean, how many kids in college, you know, actually play football? You know, there's 50. And then everybody else watches and maybe throws the ball on the quad. Um, it's the same thing with those kind of arcane Japanese arts. Everybody's not just out practicing kyudu, the ancient samurai art of archery. But it is something that's part of their consciousness. So these Japanese kids are doing some Japanese karate with me. They're doing some bonsai, doing some sword drawing. And what happens is the kids who do this are not having their meltdowns at the 60-day point. So the school gives me the, a floor of uh, McAuliffe Hall. They gave me a whole floor. had the big giant room and said, Greg, use it, do whatever you want. It's your own little dojo. So I had this big room, bonsai in front of the window. We did karate down in the room. It was great. In the, main, in the main room. I made friends with a bunch of Japanese kids and I got to taste their culture, um, the way they socialized together, the way they ate. And I became good friends with several of them. And one in particular became kind of my best buddy in college. His name was Sato. Great guy. He was into like music and rap and hip hop and DJing and all kinds of South American music and kind of opened me up to listening to a lot of different kinds of music. We we became good buddies. And he used to see me, we'd be out, you know, we partied, we'd go out to dance clubs and we'd be all drinking and the Japanese, they just love to drink wild turkey. We would be drinking whiskey and we would go till three or four o'clock in the morning and then I would have a Marine Corps drill weekend. And I would get up at 5.30 in the morning or six o'clock in the morning, put a snappy shave on, get in my uniform, throw my sea bag in my pack over my shoulder, hoof it down to my sob and head off to my reserve center to do my drill weekend. And he always just thought he was, you know, he thought it was kind of amazing. I had this discipline to get up and do this. And he knew how much I loved the country. And he saw me raising the flag on campus and he saw me doing patriotic things. It was just automatic to me. I wasn't showing off. And he said to me, he called me up the day before yesterday, and he said, he had an announcement for me, but he said that that time being there around me and being there in America, he just felt hope. And he thought America saved his soul. 
that saved his brain from dying in Japan. Now, a creative, artistic guy maybe didn't want to fit into the mold of Japan. Maybe he didn't want to do what his dad did and his mom did. His mom was a famous physician. His dad uh, ran Japan's largest insurance company and then became a baker when he retired. I had the unique opportunity of traveling to Hawaii, and uh, his family rented me a condo at Kapalua, and uh, I was in a, a condominium between uh, Michael Landon and uh, Magic Johnson. <laughs> And they had a convertible Mustang with music waiting for us when we got there. And Sato wanted to introduce me to his family. And then he introduced me to his family and his his grandfather, who's passed and his father's also passed now. They thanked me for returning their son's Japanese soul to him. That was the phrase I remember. I thought it was kind of interesting. Just I was a young guy and I took it as a plot, them being very polite to me. And because uh, I never thought of him having a Japanese soul, he always seemed like he wanted to be an American, but he never became a citizen. Well, you know, life happens and life goes by, and and uh, you get married and you have kids and you go your separate ways. He stayed playing tennis. I quit playing tennis. I got married. He never got married. I had kids. He didn't have kids. He was worked in law and has done all kinds of things. Um, he's come and visited me out here in the wild, wild west once with my dad. We went shooting out in the desert. It's like, it's amazing. You can go do this. Second year of the Trump presidency, I noticed he was, he was in his polite Japanese way telling me to stop being so political. It's too divisive. I don't need to be so harsh. And my sense at the time was, is that he was a New York Democrat and he wanted to stay friends and he was just completely turned off by my frankness. And we stopped communicating. We stopped communicating on Facebook. We didn't talk. We didn't text. Nothing. And I felt like I lost a friend over my political views. And I've paid the price a lot of times. When you guys hear me talk about my friends, you hear me talk about them in decades. My friends I've had for a long time. So I get a call from him yesterday. He had emailed me, asked me for my number. I gave him my number. He calls me up. Of course, we want to jump right back into our old conversation and talk like we're drinking buddies going out to a club. And he said, he said, hey, before you say anything, I want to tell you I agree with you now. I went, what? And he said, I agree with you. And then he started to tell me a story, how he came here from Japan to find freedom. And he didn't know it meant constitutional freedom. He thought it meant freedom to define who he is and create himself and do his own career and do something that might have been objectionable under the close relationship with his family and to be who he wanted to be here. I don't know entirely what that is, but he knows. Then he told me he's getting he's been studying to go take his citizenship citizenship test in 3 weeks and I got teary-eyed. And he said he's been listening to my podcast and you know, he didn't say, thank you for being an inspiration to me or anything like that. But it was an old friend who said when he came here, he met me and he felt all this hope about America and stayed here because of the hope he felt. And he voted for Obama because Obama seemed like a nice man, as did I. 
the first term. And he voted for Obama and then was let down by him and didn't like what happened to the country. And he felt like hope was being stolen from the country. Then Trump gets elected. And he's in the thick of it. He's in the belly of the beast in New York City. And he reads the paper. And, you know, he's fluent in English, but he still has a bit of a language. There's still a little language and um, political language barrier there. And two years into the Trump presidency, he's mad of my comments and our friendship turns off. And seven, eight months into the Biden presidency, presidency, he turns our friendship back on. And he said to me, I have to do this. He said, um, hold on. He said, I have to do this. I, I have to become a citizen. I, I have to vote. I can't be left on the sidelines again. He said, I didn't realize it, as so many people don't. They were in a pot, a pot of boiling water. You were in a, you were a frog that hopped into a pool during the first um, uh, Obama presidency, and it seemed like it was going to be okay. And the water's been turning up and boiling, and and what you saw is the people who are on the take were downtrodden by the Trump presidency because you got to earn it. And the people who were earning, they were downtrodden by the Obama presidency because all that happens is taking. And he said to me, he didn't realize how much hope had been lost internally and how sad he had felt inside. I'm paraphrasing. And that the Trump presidency was jilting. And I could tell the first couple of years... I, you know, maybe we had a miscommunication, but it seemed like he wanted me to be quiet, stop talking about politics, calm down, don't be so hostile. He was shushing me. And now he popped up seven months in and said, I didn't realize how much hope I felt and how great America was and how good I was feeling about America and how I wish uh, Japan had a leader like Trump. And he said, now I have to become an American citizen because I cannot let what has happened here the last seven months ever happen again. I, so I guess my point in all of this, he was here for 31 years licking the sugar cube. He tasted four years of Trump, found it objectionable, got conked in the head, seized the juxtaposition of the first seven months of the Biden presidency, and he's reaching out to say, I'm becoming an American citizen. And he didn't apologize to me. He had nothing to apologize about. But I almost took it like a reconnect. And he, and he didn't even let me talk. He's like, I totally agree with you. And then he wanted to tell his story. And it reminded me of my grandfather who came off the boat during World War I. I believe it was in 1914. He, he came on a ship. He didn't know food was included with his passage. He hadn't eaten in almost two weeks when he got to Ellis Island. He came through Ellis Island, headed to Boston to sell fruit and vegetables with his father and his brother. And he never wanted to go back to Greece again because Greece failed him and America was his home. And I remember him as so often we do when we're young. We come along and our elders are old. He was old. 
He's born in 02. I came along in 70. By 80, by 1980, I was 10 years old. By 1978, let's say, he was already in his mid to late 70s. And uh, he was teary-eyed and romantic about when he became an American citizen and what a big deal it was for him. I think about that every day. I think about the tears in his eyes and how he choked up and would reach into his pocket and pull out a handkerchief and wipe his eyes every time he talked about becoming an American citizen. Every time I pass a flag, every time I cross the Brooklyn Bridge, and I think about that bridge, him going over it when he was a young man, and the, and the wonder he felt going into New York City on a truck, or leaving it, headed to Boston to meet his family. I've walked the street where he moved to in Boston. I think about all that. And then my friend from Japan, who's been here for 31 years, decides to become an American. And I think I nudged him a little bit unintentionally by speaking my truth, talking about America, talking about conservatism, talking about freedom and liberty and constrained government, yelling as loud as I can from my little soapbox here in the corner of nowhere. So we have to yell, and it's hurt my business. We have to yell, and it's helped my business. We have to yell, it's cost me friends. I have to yell, and I've made friends. And sometimes my friends come back around, and sometimes they step up. And sometimes strangers that I don't know step up. And they send me boxes full of gifts from their company, from their government organization they work for, saying, thank you for saying what you do. I wish more people did. I can't stop. Even if you don't like me, you think I'm full of shit, you think I'm stupid, which I'm not. If you listen for a little while, you know I'm not a dummy. If you disagree with me and you listen for a while, it should give you pause. When we hear arguments from the opposing viewpoint from someone that is very articulate and brings a good argument, the last thing we should do is call them fat. I get called fat by liberals all the time. Now, that may be true, but that's your comeback, you socially aware, trans-friendly rainbow coalition of happy little liberals. Your best argument against me is that I'm fat. Looks like I've put some weight on. I should try shutting my mouth instead of eating. We wouldn't have to hear me and I'd be skinnier. In the absence of ideas, castigation is all you have left. If you hear somebody like me speaking the way I do, with the vocabulary I have and the way that I bring it, off the top of my chest. If you hear this, it should give you a moment of pause if you're so positive I'm wrong. I recommend you get your phone out and record yourself giving your argument and see how it comes off. I've got the death threats and I've got the... Yeah, you guys wouldn't even believe it. The executives from these big... Um, Tech companies go after my customers and extort them to drop me as a customer. I mean, I've seen the emails. Unbelievable. You wouldn't even believe it if I told you. 
If it doesn't hurt, you're not doing enough. If it doesn't cost you, you're not doing enough. Have courage for your convictions. A coward dies many times before his death. Have courage. Speak up. Be the rabble rouser. Be the challenging person at a dinner party. Who cares if you get invited again? Rattle some goddamn cages. We have to rattle cages, you guys. I don't want revolution. I believe in a quiet revolution every four years called an election. Throw the bums out. That's what I believe in. I don't believe in burn the building down and torch the country. And call bullshit on bullshit. Critical race theory. Transgenderism in the military. Three-year-olds picking their sex off the top of their head. This relativist deconstruction of, of modern society, this nihilist deconstruction view of the world, it's, it's um, untenable. It's silly. And while we're being silly as humans, as Americans, China is dead serious. They're outworking us. They're outmaneuvering us. They're outstrategizing us. And you know what? They don't care about our stupid little racial foibles. They think we're silly. I'll tell you something funny. I get hit up pretty regularly by Chinese knife manufacturing companies. They reach out to me like I'm having somebody else make their stuff. They don't know that I have my own factory. And they say, dear kind sir, I can almost read one to you right now. It just happened again a couple days ago. We're a high-end manufacturer of knives in China and Guangdong, China, and we'd like to do this for you and that for you and this for you. And I email back, not if you were the last motherfucker on earth. I hate your fucking country. I hate your government. Fuck the CCP. I'm super hostile. And best of luck to you. Have a great day. Don't contact me again. Well, they don't go put a diaper on and shit themselves. And they don't call the social police. And they don't go on YouTube all shocked of what I said. The guy emails me back and he goes, I hear this a lot. I'm very sorry for how people have acted that's turned you this way. If we can ever do business, we'd love to do business with you. <laughs> I'd be like, like, fuck you, fuck your mom, fuck your family, fuck your nationality, and fuck your government. The guy's like, well, I understand, but if you change your mind, I'd like to do business with you. How do you beat that guy? You got to outwork him. It's not going to happen in a safe space. It's not going to happen taking your fucking... Uh, uh, three-credit course hour in sociology taught under the guise of uh, Indiana Jones at UCLA. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, they're outworking us. They're hungry. And, uh, and we're not hungry, and we're butthurt about everything because we're a bunch of spoiled brats. So if you're butthurt, quit being a spoiled brat. I love when guys say, turning you off, came here for the knives, hate the politics. I was like, okay, bye. I forget what uh, Doc, Holl uh, Doc Holliday said talking to uh, Billy Bob Thornton in uh, Tombstone. Yeah. Are you still here? He said, oh, I, didn't, I did not know you were still here. The guy standing there with, <laughs> over his shotgun. He was going to shoot a wider. I did, I did not know you were here. If you don't like my politics, bye. 
I, I, I'm sorry that you're that closed-minded. You can't hear my position. You should, when I hear crazy-ass liberals go off, I don't want to call them names and go run and hide and boycott them. I want to have a discussion with them. I want to engage them. I want to nudge them. I want to have, I want to affect change because I'm a revolutionary of thinking. I want you to think differently and I can be nudged. I can be moved. I can be when your army of ideas is better than my army of ideas. I will yield. So you can't just say I'm mean. You can't just say I'm a racist. I've been called everything. You can't just put it on Google reviews that I'm a racist. That's not going to, that's not an argument. Make an argument. What I am is a fucking un unapologetic capitalist and capitalists are colorblind. So my advice to everybody is push, nudge, cajole, be a rabble rouser, drive everyone a little crazy because that's the best form of revolution we can possibly pull off our ideas and changing someone's mind a little bit all right that's tuesday i'm gonna jump out of here i thought well maybe i'll say hi to a couple people we got a bunch of you on here mark is there the four horsemen reference okay good we got all kinds of folks hey bob how are you i'm on live with youtube right now You're killing a couple minutes? Okay. All right. Uh, bunch of people on here saying hi. Boom, 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 boom. And hey, look, I see the usual suspects. I see some. I don't know what that means. There's some stuff on here. I don't know what it means. <laughs> Stuff's held for review. Hey, well, listen, thanks for stopping in here on this Tuesday and uh, um, have courage for your convictions. That's my uh, that's my word to everybody today. I'm out.